Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Animals to the Max podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. You guys, I am so pumped up about today's guest. On the show, I have Zoo Miami spokesperson and communications director Ron McGill. Now, that name probably sounds really familiar. Ron has been working with animals for over 40 years and has appeared on some of the top television shows in the world, including Good Morning America, the Discovery Channel, the History Channel, ESPN Radio, also some big shows on some Spanish networks. He's also a Nikon ambassador. You guys, this guy does it all. And to be able to talk to somebody who has been in this field in this industry, working with animals in a zoo, you know, doing educational outreach programs, especially in the media, was honestly a dream come true. And just the insight and hearing his stories, he's, Ron is such a good storyteller. I just, I just absolutely love this interview. And just to talk to someone who's been doing this for so long. And so for all of you uh, who love animals, who want to work with animals, maybe you want to pursue a career working with animals in a zoo or in media, or you just want to raise awareness about wildlife conservation, this is the show for you. You are going to love it. This guy's a living legend. I'm so happy we got him on the Animals to the Max show. Before we get to the interview with Ron, as always, please make sure to subscribe to the show. Give it a five-star rating. That, honestly, if you want to help the show out, it's free, and we appreciate it so much. It helps iTunes and all the other podcasting platforms get the show out there, so I really appreciate it. Also, uh, make sure, if you haven't already, to follow me on my social channels, at Corbin Maxi on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter. And if you want to help support the show... Because, as you know, the show is a labor of love, you can donate to our Patreon page. That is patreon.com slash animals to the max. I will put a link in the show notes. I have to give a shout out to some new Patreon members. I want to give a shout out to Brittany, Val, and Sean. Thank you so much for joining the Animals to the Max Patreon page. Once again, all those fees keep the podcast ad-free. They go towards web hosting fees, new equipment, and you get awesome bonus perks, including insights on what's coming up with the podcast, the Animals to the Max podcast, as well as exclusive behind-the-scenes looks at what we're doing with my YouTube channel and a bunch of different stuff with my animals. So once again, that is the Patreon page, and I will include the links in the show notes. With that said, let's get to it, you guys. Let's talk to our amazing guest today. Please welcome to the show, Ron McGill from Zoo Miami. The living legend, Ron McGill. Welcome to the show. I'm not a living legend, but thanks so much, Corbin. I appreciate it. I'm just old. <laughs> no, you're not. No. So, But you've been working with animals for over 38 years. Is that correct? I, actually, now this is my 41st year here at the zoo working with animals, probably closer to 45 because I started at the old Miami Serpentarium working with snakes and crocodiles to begin with before I started here at the zoo 41 years ago. Oh my gosh. And so my listeners might be familiar with you. You are known, you know, for all of your appearances on national television. You also appear regularly on ESPN radio on the Dan um, Levitard show, which I have to give a shout out. My, my cousin Paul is such a huge fan of yours. And I just called him right before <laughs> this interview. And I was like, I got Ron on the show and he's like, no way. Oh, hey, well, you know, I'll tell you, 
Dan is a great guy. And, 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 you know, a lot of people wonder, what the heck is this guy talking about animals for on ESPN radio? And actually, ESPN gave Dan a hard time about that in the beginning. Um, and I was kind of really nervous. About it. I said, Dan, come on. I don't want to get you in trouble. You know, Dan's a good friend and stuff. Said, no, you're going to do the show with me. And it turns out it was one of the most popular segments on the show. So ESPN loved it. Uh, so from there, we've been doing it for, oh, God, five, six years now. It's been a lot of fun. Ron, it's hilarious. And they compiled some of your best moments when listeners oh. call in on YouTube. And my favorite one is when some guy called in and asked you if if a gorilla family could raise a human like in Tarzan. <laughs> you know, Corbin, you got to do a lot of those things tongue in cheek. You got to have some fun with them. But I think what I've learned a long time ago from some of my great mentors in television is that, listen, you got to learn to laugh at yourself. And whenever you have the opportunity... Have some tongue-in-cheek fun, but try to put in some good facts about it, too, you know, because what I'm reaching there is I'm reaching a—I a, have a platform to reach people that might not normally be watching Discovery Channel, might not be watching National Geographic, might not be watching the shows that you and I are mostly associated with. So here you got a, a chance to kind of plant a seed in people that maybe spark their interest a little bit more. Yes, and you are such a pro because you handled it. You, you didn't even laugh at his question. You were like, well, I'm not going to say no, but... And then you just went into <laughs> this, and Dan and the rest of his crew are just like, they could barely keep their composure because they're just like, what? Idiot. Anyway, so I... <laughs> like, I <laughs> yeah, again, you know, I guess if I were to give advice to anybody doing this kind of thing, is the advice is given to me. I, I used to do a show for 27 years. It was the number one viewed variety show in the world. In Spanish, it was called Sábado Gigante. And this show was watched all over the world, Corbin. And the host on that show was basically like the American Johnny Carson uh, in the sense that, you know, this 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 show had a much bigger audience than Letterman, than any of those shows um, all around the world. And I remember when he first asked me to do the show, it was, the show is kind of a, a combination of, you know, let's make a deal, Oprah and the gong show all in once. Uh, and uh, And I said to myself, you know, I don't know if I feel comfortable with this. I don't know if I'm kind of losing self-respect or dignity because, you know, you had a bunch of dancing girls and uh, very shortly dressed skirts and doing all kind of kind of coochie coochie stuff. And here I am kind of talking about animals. And I said, I don't know if this is the message I want to send out. And, you know, he sat me down. He said, Ron, I go up there. His name was Don Francisco. Uh, his real name is Mario Cooperger. But anyway, he sat me down in his dressing room and he said, Ron, let me give you a piece of advice. I go out every week and I make a total fool of myself. And he does, you know, he put on goofy hats and he make these crazy characters and stuff. And he said, because what we're doing is we're connecting to people. You're bringing people a bit of levity at a time when they're looking for something to forget about a lot of the problems and things they have. And at the same time, give them some good information. So if you can laugh at yourself, it doesn't matter if people are laughing at you as long as you're getting information. And you know, he was so right. Uh, I, I can tell you a real quick story of something that happened with me that really cemented in my head how powerful that show was and in general how powerful television is you know when i grew up uh, i'm a lot older than you are and you probably had you know you probably had the crocodile hunter and a lot of those guys but when i grew up there was really one show on television it was called mutual of omaha's wild kingdom and i grew up with two guys named marlon perkins and jim fowler and i really you know I grew up in a small apartment in New York City. My father was a Cuban immigrant. We really didn't have very much at all. Um, and I, we had one small black and white television set, little 12-inch black and white television set in our, in our apartment. Had a coat hanger that we used as, a, as an antenna because the extended oh. antenna snapped off, you know? Mm -hmm. So we watched, and, and on Sunday nights at 7.30 came on Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And Corbin, that was church to me. That was like going to church. It was my religion to watch that show. And on that show, generally... 
Marlon Perkins was the guy up in the office, and he'd be talking about Jim doing a lot of the real hands-on stuff in the field. You know, I mean, I saw videos of Jim jumping out of helicopters on top of, uh, you know, caribou. I saw him scaling a mountainside and grabbing a condor with one hand. I saw him <laughs> catch a jaguar with a throw net, a wild jaguar <laughs> with a throw net. And I'm thinking, that's what I want to do. I want to do what this guy does. I want to be in the field. You know, again, a kid who'd never been out of New York City in my entire life. Mm. I wanted to see if there was a chance of seeing the world and exploring this wildlife that way. Make a long story short, fast forward way into my life, but about 35 years ago. Um, and, I, and I want to preface this by saying, you know, I've been very lucky. I've met a lot of quote unquote celebrities over the years doing a lot of these programs. But I've never been someone who's been starstruck. Never. Except when I heard Jim Fowler was coming to Miami on this national Wild Kingdom tour. And you know, what he would do is, like what I think you and I do when we go to different towns, different cities, we contact a local zoo or somebody there who has, you don't wanna fly animals back and forth all the time, it's too stressful for them. So he called the zoo here and said, listen, we're doing our Wild Kingdom tourist. Can someone bring some animals from the zoo that we can include in my presentation on stage? And for the first time I was going, oh my God, please send me, please. I gotta meet this guy. I've watched this guy since I was six years old. And I remember going down to the Miami Beach uh, uh, Performing Arts Theater down here, the, the Jackie Gleason Theater, and um, I go to his dressing room. It says Jim fell in a dressing room. I knock on his door, and, I, and he opens the door. I'm a tall guy, Corbin. I'm six foot six. You know? Oh man, I'm a pretty tall guy. Jim is also like he was six five, six four, but much bigger guy. He was like a yeah, football. Yeah. And he's got this great baritone voice, and he goes. Ron? I go, yes, Mr. Fowler. No, please call me Jim. And he comes on in and you know, put his arm around me. And he, we just hit it off so well. And from that day on, he was one of my greatest mentors. We became close friends. We did documentaries together. We won awards together. We uh, you know, had dinner at my house. I remember the first time he had dinner at my house. I'm looking across the table. I'm thinking, Jim, I can't believe this is true. Because for me, this was like, you know, this is like a basketball player having, you know, dinner with LeBron James or something. Oh, man. I was here with, with Jim Fowler in my home. And we just became really close friends. And he taught me really how to be a communicator about animals. You know, uh, I think one of the biggest advantages that at least I had, it's a little more competitive for you now, because I think your generation is a lot more outgoing. But, you know, when I started working in zoos over 40 years ago, most people worked with animals because they didn't want to work with people. Mm. Okay. A lot of them were introverts. They were really great around animals, but they got kind of got introverted around people. They weren't necessarily great communicators. And most importantly, they weren't really good storytellers. And I think in what we do, we've got to be good storytellers. We've got to engage people. We've got to be able to, you know, to transmit that passion that we have. And Jim taught me how to do that. Jim told me, listen, you don't have to be stupid. You don't have to go over the top. You don't have to do crazy stuff. But, you know, be a little lighthearted and have some fun and make sure you're always staying on theme. Don't don't go off on all these crazy things sometimes because a lot of the media people will try to, you know, either blow something out of proportion, which is something that I, you know, confront all the time. I mean, I, I do a lot of stuff for Good Morning America all the time. And, you know, they're always coming, okay, we had this alligator attack. What about alligator? And, and I think deep down inside, they want me to say, oh, yeah, these alligators can kill you. You got to be careful. And I go from completely the other side. I said, listen, if you leave them alone, they'll leave you alone. I live in a state where there's well over a million alligators. I see them every day. Um, you know, it's a, it's a matter of getting people to understand that if you respect nature, you shouldn't have any reason to be afraid of it. And and that's 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 the point I try to get. So anyway, the original point, Jim Fowler was my mentor back then. He just passed away last year. But, uh, you know, all these years, he was a guy that really taught me how to be a communicator, taught me how to connect with people, and taught me how to have respect for wildlife in every sense of the word. 
Wow. So you're sitting across having dinner with your mentor. You're pretty much pinching yourself like what? In uh, the, I mean, and it's so cool that you guys connected. I mean, were you nervous? Because I'm sure we've been in situations where you meet people in the public eye and their persona is not, <laughs> it's not oh, exact. Listen, yeah. Behind the scenes. You, you are not probably really know yet. it as well as I do. You know, there are a lot of people. I tell people this all the time. Television gives credibility to people who many times don't deserve it. I've met people in person who I watched on television and thought, wow, they're really nice, great people. And as soon as the camera's off, they're not very nice. They're not very great people. OK, um, so I try to tell people, especially I speak a lot to university uh, students and high school kids. I said, listen, don't get caught up in this shallow society that we live in where, you know, a person who has, you know, 100,000 likes is all of a sudden important. Mm -hmm. OK, don't get caught yeah. up because you see somebody on television and think, oh, that gives them credibility because it's the people very often that are behind the scenes that might be writing their scripts. They might be, you know, maneuvering the camera, doing the edits. Those are the people who deserve the credit hmm. who never get the credit. Yep. My one of my old managers, Marta Tracy, she's a good friend of mine, and she is one of the original creators of the E! Television Network. And she wow. always told me. Be nice to everybody, including the 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 food staff, the janitor. I mean, just every single person. And I've always remembered that. So every time I go and do the Today Show, it's like a big family. And not only am I saying hi to the anchors, but they're off in faraway land doing whatever they have to do. But I'm so connected with those people. And it's so important that you respect all those people. Because a lot of times I've seen, and you've seen this too, where people just treat them like, complete crap and it's and it's so awful like the anyway so i just i think that's such a good way to look at it i, I want to get back to the original point with my jim fowler story absolutely about how important this show was yeah. the Salvador gigante so so jim and i are going down into panama we're doing uh, some studies and research on a harpy eagle in the darien jungle oh. uh, jim was probably one of the first people to write a paper published on the harpy eagle it was one oh. of the best experts on harpy eagles it's always since i was a little boy been my favorite animal i'd never seen one alive until i went down into panama the only one i'd ever saw was the one at the Museum of Natural History in New York mm. when I went there as a little boy. Mm. And I said, my God, the, the size of this bird, the talons, it was such a majestic animal. I always dreamed of seeing one alive. So I, I started this big conservation project in Panama, and I had Jim come down with me. So we had to go down to meet these indigenous people that were on the dead end, which was on the border of Colombia and Panama. We had to take a little dugout canoe, Corbin, about three and a half hours down the river. Okay, until we get to the little village, and then you see the chief of the village comes out on the little air on the bank there where the village is to meet us, and he's just literally in a loincloth. That's it. I mean, it's truly, you know, indigenous people. Women don't have any tops on; they're just covered with beads. And and the man comes up, and we we go up, and I go when I you know I'm talking. He speaks Spanish, thank goodness. He also speaks. I go when I, he goes, and he looks at me, he goes, Romagil, Sabado <laughs> And honestly, God, I said to myself, I said, you know what? I'm being punked here. This is a stunt. I'm being punked. I really thought I was being punked. I go, wait a minute. How do you know who I am? He goes, Sabo Gigante. I go, how do you know Sabo Gigante? You live in the middle of a rainforest on the border of Colombia and Panama with no running water, no electricity. He goes, no, no. So we walk through the, on a trail through the village. And in the village, they have a setup there, Corbin, with a television set hooked up to a car battery with some kind of transformer to a satellite dish. And that battery enabled them... The only television they watched was on Saturday nights, was that show. It wow. was like Saturday night at the movies for the village. And they were just, they thought I was a god when I walked in there. They couldn't believe they were seeing me, you know. And again, on television, people don't realize how tall I am. So when they saw me, I'm even bigger in life, so tall. And they was just, so I actually filmed them. 
And when I went back to Sao Gigante, I showed Don Francisco. I said, look, these are the people just saying, oh, my God. And he put it on the show. Oh, my God. I can tell you that that village tribe is the most popular village tribe in all of Panama. They're heroes because they were put on that show. And and again, that showed me Don Francisco. he He proved to me how powerful media can be when you use it properly. 100%, because I bet when you were filming those segments, maybe a little on edge when you said, oh, I don't want to, I don't know, kind of be, I don't act ridiculous, or maybe this will hurt my credibility. And then you have a tribe in South America watching you with people with no tops on and a guy in a skirt. Like just, exactly. That's <laughs> crazy. And, and, people, and people who quite honestly, though a lot of them could not read or write, they have forgotten more about the forest than I'll ever learn. I think what's one of the biggest mistakes a lot of people make, and I even see it in the cities where these tribes of the countries that they, that they live in, you know, people look at indigenous people as maybe not being formally educated. And they think because of that, they're not very intelligent and they mm. couldn't be further than the truth. Because when you get into some of these indigenous cultures and how they live off the land, you know, I was remember we were going through, we were, we were looking for a harpy eagle nest in the forest. We were following a trail and all of a sudden I got stung. I mean, by, by a wasp that just lit me up. I mean, it was just like, wow, it's worse than a scorpion sting. And I, the, the, my guide with me, one of the village elders there goes, wait here. And he goes in, walks in the forest, comes out, and he's got a bunch of bark. And he's chewing on this bark. And he's chewing it. And then all of a sudden, he spits on my arm and starts rubbing it in. And Corbin, I'm telling you, within 30 seconds, the pain started to subside. And within a few, I felt nothing. And I look at him and go, what is that? He goes, well, that's, you know, we get stung all the time. This is a, a plant that we use that we mix with saliva and we put it on there and it makes the, the, the pain go away. I'm saying, you know, I can't find this kind of stuff at a CVS pharmacy. <laughs> Here I am with this guy spitting on me from something he chews in the forest. And the lesson is that, you know, we're looking at a pharmacy. I mean, these forests, these places mm. are pharmacies. There's so much yet to be discovered. So we've got to soak in all of that stuff. It's one of the greatest privileges I've had is traveling around the world and meeting these people and learning from them how they literally live off the land, how they use the land to protect themselves, to keep, maintain their health and do things that many of us sometimes are, you know, buying all kinds of artificial garbage for. Yeah. Oh my, that's why it's so important to just preserve that area over there. So I just want to go back, Ron. So when you grew up in New York, did you always want to work with animals or did you see yourself wanting to be on TV because you saw Jim Fowler? Is that, is that what your plan was, your trajectory? I never wanted to be on TV. Um, I wanted to be able to do what Jim did. I wanted to be in Africa. I wanted to be in the Amazon. I wanted to go to Antarctica. You know, I wanted to see these things that I saw Jim doing. I wanted to see the world. It really had nothing to do with television. That kind of just fell into place because I uh, was actually by accident talking about animals here at the zoo. And one of the news directors here said, man, you got to do something. You know, and then I had my own little show here. And that eventually went to, I had my own national show in Spanish. You know, actually, I'm the host of the Spanish version of Wild Kingdom that's on the, the so Spanish cool. PBS network. So, it, 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 you know, it was kind of these things that just fell into place. But I never really wanted to be on television. What I wanted to do is I, I wanted to connect people with animals. Um, I didn't realize that television at the time was the greatest platform to do that. Mm. You know, now that's debatable. Now they can say social media. There's so much social media stuff going on. It, that, that stuff's kind of all over my head now. I'm, I'm kind of an old man. I'm kind of set in my ways. I do what I do. Um, but when I started, you know, 40 plus years ago, it was that was the avenue to, to get noticed, you know, is to be on television. So that happened to me by accident. I never 
to this day, I don't have an agent. I, you know, I've had tons of people come to me saying, I want to be your agent. No, I don't want an agent because then it becomes about money. I'm fortunate I have a great job here at the zoo. I've been here for 40 plus years. I get a, a great salary doing what I do here. So I don't have to worry about the money. The money is like an after. I just want to have fun. Uh, and, mm. you know, it's that old saying that says, if you, if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. And that's just been the life I've led. I've never really had to work a day in my life. Experience. Listen, even when bad things have happened to me, Corbin, I'll tell you one of my favorite stories. I uh, was moving some crocodiles one day. And, you know, I was young in my early 20s. And um, sometimes young guys tend to get a little cocky. They get a little self-assured, a little too confident in what they're doing. And I was kind of not paying attention as well as I should have. And make a long story short, I got nailed pretty hard in my left hand by a Nile crocodile. Oh. To, the point, to the point where I luckily had some guys with me who jumped on the head right away so he didn't do that that roll or shake his head and rip my hand off. But we had to put a shovel in his mouth to pry it open so I could get my hand oh out. Oh, my God. And I remember taking my hand out and seeing, obviously, broken bones and stuff and blood everywhere. I had to be rushed to the hospital. And I'm thinking, well, this is pretty terrible. Um, I, the only positive thing I was, you know, I was thinking, oh, my gosh. This is going to sound horrible, politically, totally incorrect, but I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm a 20-something-year-old guy, so I'm thinking to myself, because my father always said, you got to learn how to make lemonade out of the lemons. I said, maybe I want to have this beautiful nurse, and a nice little white nurse <laughs> to take care of me in the hospitals. And it'd be nice. You know, I, I didn't have any permanent girlfriend at the time. I said, this might be a great thing. You know, everybody's got that little dream of the beautiful nurse taking care of me. I go to the hospital, I have surgery on my hand, they put pins and stuff in my hand, and then all of a sudden I got a cast in my elbow and I'm waiting in my room for my nurse to come in after surgery. My nurse comes in, first of all, it's a guy. It's not, it's not, a, very, it's not a very nice guy. Okay, he comes in and he just, you know, he's just not a nice guy. So this isn't working out the way it's supposed to work out. And I'm all bummed and there's a day or two goes by, I'm in the hospital. Then after a day or two in the hospital, I have to go downstairs to physical therapy to get therapy on my hand. They make me sit in a wheelchair to go down into physical therapy, and I'm waiting for the physical therapist to come in. And, you know, I'm sitting there going, this just, just can't get any worse. You know, this, this is horrible. And all of a sudden, the door opens. And I'm telling you, Corbin, I'm not exaggerating one bit. The absolutely most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life walks through that door. And she goes, hi, I'm going to be part of your therapy team. And I'm like, I've died and gone to heaven. I just couldn't believe how... how <laughs> Make a long story short, I married her a year later, and that was 32 years ago. Oh, my so God. Are you serious? Had, I would never have met my wife had I not gotten bitten by the crocodile. No um, so way. See, what I try to tell people all the time is there's a good reason for every bad thing that happens. You just got to give it time. There's a good reason for every bad thing that happens. I would never have met her because she was here just getting her master's degree in physical therapy and going to head back to Los Angeles, where she's from. But we met. Things changed, and here we are, thirty something years later, with you know two kids out of college with their own careers, doing their own thing. Wow, that is an amazing story because of a Nile crocodile. Because of a Nile crocodile that bit me in the hand pretty badly. Yes, that scar is something I use as my cupid scar. Oh my gosh, that is a crazy experience. Did you? I mean, did your body just go into shock? Did you actually feel that bite? I think it did go into shock because I, I don't remember feeling the, the next morning after surgery. Oh, my you gosh. Felt the I felt the pain. But at the time, no, I really didn't feel the pain. It's really, I mean, when I looked at it, I went, oh, my God, why yeah. am I not feeling tremendous pain? Because, you know, fingers were bent the wrong way. It was pretty bad. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, kudos to my wife. She's an exceptional physical therapist because now it all works except that thumb doesn't bend all the way. But everything else works fine. 
Man, you're lucky from a Nile Croc. I mean, I almost... Now, it wasn't a big Nile Croc. How big? Oh, that's still big, though. I mean, I th- it's it not... Enough, it was enough to break bones. Let's put it that way. Oh, <laughs> man. I just almost lost my middle finger to an American alligator this summer. And it just happened so quick. And it just... It I didn't feel quick. it. And my finger was filleted like a lobster. And I just was yeah. like, ah! Anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, that's... Yeah, that's amazing. So... When you enter, so you become a keeper at Zoo Miami. Tell me about that back in the day, because we have a lot of keepers or aspiring keepers who want to work in the zoo field. What was that like 40 plus years ago at Zoo Miami? Well, I'll tell you, Corbin, it was a lot easier than it was today, because back Mm. then it, it, it still wasn't the professional career that it is today. I remember when I got out of the University of Florida and I came back, I was the first kid in my family to go to college. And I came back and told my dad, listen, I'm taking this job as a zookeeper. And he looked at me because my dad only got through like fourth or fifth grade in Cuba. His big thing was my kids are going to have a good education. You know, he might not have had a great formal education. Still the smartest man I've ever known. But he was so headstrong that I had to get my college and get a professional, you know, white collar career. Mm. And I told him zookeeper. And I'll never forget it because he looked at me and he goes with a heavy Cuban accent because he never lost his accent. He goes, so you're going to you're going to leave college to to shovel crap now for animals? And I said, Pop, it's much more than that. Okay? <laughs> it's much more than that. Um, and, you know, to his credit, he said, listen, I don't care what you do as long as you do what you love, uh, because if you love what you do, you, you'll, you'll be well at it. And I said that, you know, that's what I, I need to learn. The experience is everything. Um, and no, no matter what anybody tells you, Corbin, I tell people all the time when they want to work at a zoo. Yes, the education is important. But really, me as a person interviewing people for jobs, I can tell you that I'm not going to look at your transcript to see what grades you made. I'm going to see that you got your degree and you got out. You made that minimal qualification. What I will do is I'm going to have an interview with you. I'm going to see how you look at me, whether we make eye contact, and I'm going to see the passion that you have and what experience you have. So I, 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 can't, I can't say it strongly enough. If you want to work in a zoo field, as soon as you have the ability volunteer at a rescue or rehabilitation facility, uh, any place, you, even if it's for nothing, if you're not getting paid money, that experience you're getting paid is going to be worth much more than any money you can make. Because I have learned that you can have someone who gets out of college, made straight A's, dean's list every year. But when they come to apply what they've learned in school to real life, they're lost. And I think a lot of people haven't an innate sense of how to be around animals. Uh, and I think animals sense that too. Uh, you know, and I've seen people who are good people, brilliant people, but were so a fish out of water when they were around in a real animal. It wasn't a book. It wasn't a test they had to take. You know, it was just, well, how do I react to this ever-changing thing? And, you know, being a zookeeper is different every day. Mm. I mean, you certainly have your routines, but as an old saying that says, the only thing predictable about these animals is that they're unpredictable. And you've got to have tremendous patience. You have to have tremendous observation skills um, and, and a profound dedication because none of us do this for the money. That's for darn sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just, yeah. And I think God, that advice is so good. And just, you know, when you are going in for that interview, I mean, the experience, getting the experience, making sure, um, you know, they're connecting with you because it's so competitive. I mean, each, I mean, really? for, a, for a zoo, okay, let's, for instance, Zoo Miami, one of the top zoos in the country, by the way, 
I was so impressed with Zoo Miami. And I was there 10 years ago. That's the last time I've been really? there. Dude, it was wow. it was amazing. I had such a good time. So I just was so impressed. Anyway, Zoo Miami, one of the top zoos in the country. How many like applications would you get for one, I don't know, zookeeping position? We get tons of them. And not only do we get tons of applications, but we get them from all over the country. Because mm. understand that if you're a zookeeper working in Michigan or North Dakota or Washington State, you know the winners really suck. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> when your hoses are freezing over when you've got to, you know, keep animals warm. You got to get all these things going here in Miami. We're living heaven. Other than those occasional hurricanes, which can be somewhat frightening. Uh, we really live in a utopia, especially for the majority of the animals. Now, here at Zoo Miami, you know, we don't have polar bears, penguins, any of the temperate animals, because we try to concentrate on the animals that really would thrive in this climate. Um, and as much as I, I know we have an incredible staff, we have an incredible facility. Now, a great deal of our success, Corbin, is directly related to the to the climate. Mm-hmm. We don't have to, in the wintertime, put our primates into buildings. You know, we don't have to put our elephants into barns. Um, they're outdoors on wide open, beautiful, lush landscapes. Yes. It's grass. These are all things that these animals thrive on because usually their natural habitat is that same that same type of climate, that same type of weather. So, you know, there's the old saying that you can't fool Mother Nature. So a lot of zoos can have all their computerized rain machines and humidity machines and photosynthesis machines and stuff. Nothing is going to be exactly like the sun, the rain and the wind. I've yeah, I've never been to a zoo before that. I mean, the habitats were immaculate that the gardens, every exhibit had these palm trees, open air. <laughs> and I just was jealous because I'm in I'm in Idaho. And as you know, we have our winters and yes, our, you do. Yes. But our, you got great potatoes, man. Oh, yes, we do. Dude, I'm starving right now. Yeah, yeah. They're the best potatoes. But no, I remember walking there thinking, God, how much easier for this facility to keep everything outside year round? Because I mean, honestly, all the exhibits are open air. And yeah, it's just a beautiful place place to have a zoo i appreciate it thank you yeah 100 so you're so 41 years ago you are a zookeeper are you working with all different types of animals did you have one species that you wanted to work with when you jumped into this field what i got the job for was before i started working the zoo i was uh, a keeper and then a curator at a place called the miami serpentarium oh yes okay yep which was a, an attraction that had all kinds of venomous snakes. The, the gentleman who owned it, a man named Bill Host, was considered one of the top experts in the world. He was the guy who actually injected himself with a cocktail of snake venoms that kept up his immunities. He was bitten over 160 times by the deadliest snakes in the world, including king cobras. Um, and they used his blood as a serum for people who were allergic to antivenine. Remember, antivenine is made using horse blood. So people have an allergy. Some people have an allergy to the horse blood. They could not use the antivenine. So people who were bitten had the allergy. They would fly his blood and his blood saved the lives of many, many people. Wow. I learned a lot from him. He was not much of a talkative guy, but I learned by watching him, by him allowing me to watch him in a system. He did a lot of these hand grabbing shows, you know, where he had cobras and he would hand grab them and then milk them, collect the venom, doing a lot of the research with the venoms. Um, so I got my experience working with that and the crocodiles and the reptiles there. So that's how I got my foot in the door at the old zoo before the zoo was open. Um, and I started as a reptile keeper. But back then, we swung around all the time. You know, hey, listen, uh, I got to go work Hay Row today. We called it Hay Row, Hostock, you know. Yeah. Um, got to work Hay Row. They called in sick, go do Hay Row. Or, you know, hey, got to work primates today because, uh, I don't know, Bodo's on leave or whatever. So there was a lot more flexibility back then. Today, I think zoos have much more focus on keepers in certain areas and certain animals because it's better to be 
an expert in something than, you know, just a, a layman in everything. Um, though it's not, I don't want to discourage people getting as much experience as they can with as many animals as they can. But I always tend to think that people tend to do better with animals that they are really gravitating towards, that they have a profound interest in. Uh, I wouldn't want to force people to say, well, now you have to take care of this. I don't even know anything about that, you know. Uh -huh. um, so I think the zookeeper profession today is a much more professional profession. Uh, it, it, it's, I think it's much closer to white collar than it is to blue collar, except that, you know, we get messy. Yeah. That's about it. But we have to be scientists. We have to be observers. We have to know things. Uh, working with SSPs, working with pedigrees and breeding programs and setting up all these things, behaviors. So th there's a lot of science involved now in being a zookeeper. It's not a maintenance job anymore. Do you miss the good old days, though? Like, be honest, the good old days when they're like, hey, take care of Hayro. Or do you just miss that when things were a little bit more relaxed? I miss that more than you could ever know. Really? Uh, yeah, I really do. Um, this zoo has also gotten so large now that it's become compartmentalized. Yeah. You know? I think there's some people on one side of the zoo that really don't know people on the other side of the zoo. Remember, mm. this zoo is over 330 acres. Yep. Um, it's a big park, and we've got close to 500 employees here now. 500? So yeah. I mean, that's taking all the concessions. Sure. And all, but still 500 employees. So it's a big park, and I miss the intimacy of having that real zoo family that yeah. we used to have back then. I, I miss that a lot. I miss also um, having to walk on eggshells a lot. You know, when I started, uh, I started a program here called the Cheetah Ambassador Program years ago, where we brought two cheetahs that were born under human care in South Africa to mm -hmm. use as ambassadors here. And I would travel around the country with those cheetahs. I mean, I bought those wow. cheetahs on the Letterman show. I bought them on the CBS Early show. And, you know, we, I, I went with uh, with Lori Marker and helped her raise funds for the Cheetah Conservation oh, Fund nice. with them. You know, worked with Isabella Rosalini, all these people raising money for cheetah conservation. Um, and we were able to do that without a problem. You know, I, I, I remember taking a cheetah and sleeping at the Mayflower Hotel in New York when we were making these appearances oh, in New York with a cheetah in the room. And now everything's gotten so strict. And I understand there are safety issues involved, Dude. but I think sometimes we've got to be very careful. We throw the baby out with the bathwater. Oh, man, you're speaking to me. I, man, I'm, I feel like I'm honestly, I feel like I'm like 30 years too late. I feel like it's so, I don't know. I, I worked with a lead handler. So I got my star on the tonight show with Jay Leno. And mm -hmm. I remember at, at 14 years old and one of, one of the handlers, anyway, I ended up getting to know, and he worked with great you know, experts like Steve Irwin, I think even Jim Fowler and stuff, but he, he retired in 2008 and said, Corbin. And he just said, you're effed. He dropped and he dropped a complete F bomb. <laughs> yeah. And I said, well, thanks. I, 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 uh, um, I appreciate it, Jim. And, but he was so right because there's so many restrictions now, Ron, there's so many, man. I, I can't even tell you. I wish I could vent because people don't no, realize. I know. I know. You know, you do. I still have to go to New York to make appearances and stuff. You know, I, I, have you used Grant? Yes, of course. Yeah, well, Grant is a good friend of mine. And Grant yes. Grant has helped do the CBS stuff and stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, I look at the, the hoops that Grant has to jump through for permits just to bring animals into the city. Oh, I mean, yeah. So it, 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 it's incredible. Yeah. So when, when I don't go through Grant and Grant, by the way, has a private facility and Grant is someone who provides animals for listeners who don't know, you know, for television, for educational appearances. He does stuff One with of the Jack very Hanna. best I've ever worked with. 
One yeah, of the and, very best I've ever worked with. Yeah, and his animals, I've worked with Grant on the Today Show. He helped me out with animals on Late Night with Seth Meyers. I mean, his animals are always just, you know, very well behaved. And Grant and Jamie are just, you know, really, really nice people. I've been to their facility in Pennsylvania. It's beautiful. I mean, I just, anyway, Grant was so nice to give me a tour of all of his lions and tigers and bears. And I mean, right. I mean, oh, my pun intended. Anyway, but um, when I'm not working with Grant, I have to handle the permits um, for some of the zoos I work with. And it is insane the hoops that you jump through to try to do this, this TV appearance. It's, it's just, yeah, for shows in New York, it's crazy. Yeah. And I, and I feel badly about it. You know, and the other, the other problem we have, and I say this with, with, you know, a fair amount of respect is that, you know, we have a lot of extremists out there oh. who just feel that there is never any good reason to have an animal on a television program. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm the first to tell you this, Corbin, and I'll say this with a, you know, a, a bit of reservation, but in a perfect world, we wouldn't need any zoos. Okay. In a perfect world, everybody would be able to go out and see an elephant walking in the Serengeti, see a jaguar in the Amazon, see a polar bear in the Arctic. We don't live in a perfect world. I do what I do today because when I was a little kid, my mother brought me to the Bronx Zoo and something happened to me when I went to the Bronx Zoo and I was able to look at an animal eye to eye. That connection doesn't have a price tag on it. And I understand you need to have respect. You need to do it right. I think, you know, when you have you know, shows like Tiger King come on mm. and feature this absolute train wreck of an excuse for an animal facility. Um, it just paints a broad brush against everything. Again, you're throwing the, 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 the baby out with the bathwater here. Everybody says, see, that's why I know we should have it. That's not the case. I'm not here to say either that only accredited zoos should have animals because there are really some fantastic sanctuaries that do great work that aren't necessarily accredited by the AZA, but could be if they could afford it. But instead of spending the money they need to go through that accreditation process, they spend the money on their facility and their Mm -hmm. care. Um, But at the same time, I've got to call out these roadside attractions that are just horrific. You know, people who are putting tuxedos on penguins and dressing their chimps and little diapers and stuff. I mean, that's the kind of stuff we cannot support. And we've got to be able to draw the line. So though I think in a perfect world we don't need any zoos i understand the value of zoos because if it wasn't for a zoo when i was a little kid visiting a zoo i wouldn't do what i do today and i've personally by myself raised millions of dollars that have gone directly to conservation in the wild so that's the value zoos provide windows into the world of wildlife that plant a seed in people especially kids especially kids who don't have the wherewithal to travel to these remote places to care about wildlife and hopefully protect it for the future. Yeah, think about people living in the projects. I mean, I mean, and like the Bronx is a great example. Exactly. The Bronx is a phenomenal zoo. And think about all those inner city kids who would never have the opportunity. The Bronx Zoo is what, almost 500 acres if 600? And yeah. it's it's their only connection to nature, honestly. And the thing people don't understand is that the Bronx Zoo, which is the Wildlife Conservation Society, yeah. the Wildlife Conservation Society gives millions of dollars each year to conservation in the field. Not a penny into the zoo, but directly with boots on the ground conservation work in the field. So when you look at WCS, Wildlife Conservation Society, they are the role model for all zoos to follow when it comes to conservation. I think so. And I don't think zoos, I don't think they publicize it. That, uh, they just, don't do a good enough job. Uh, no, we don't, don't do a good do enough it. job of that. No, 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 they don't. What do you say about, I mean, I guess let's get into it. SeaWorld, Blackfish. Blackfish. Are you, exactly. are, are, are you like, oh, crap. Here you, <laughs> are you, no, no, are you prepared no, for it? Not. Okay. You know why? Because we need to be totally transparent. I think so. I think, 
I think SeaWorld, if they did a bad job at anything, it was promoting what good they do for conservation. There was too much focus on the showy part of the killer whales without focusing all the rescuing they do, whether it be yeah. manatees, whether it be the research that goes into killer whales. They just didn't do a good enough job at that. Now, to their credit, they're making changes. They've made yeah. changes. They're not going to have the quote-unquote show anymore. They're going to be more of an encounter. They're not going to breed the whales. I'll, I'll be the first to tell you, Corbin, and I know a lot of my peers really get a little angry with me when I say this, but I don't know if I could ever, ever support taking a cetacean out of the wild and putting it under human care. Mm -hmm. Unless it's a last-ditch effort to save its life with the hopes of returning it to the wild, and if not, we keep it under human care because it was a last-ditch effort to save its life. But what those organizations did, what Blackfish you know, featured back in the 70s, mm -hmm. was horrific. It's still horrific what has happened with those dolphins in Japan and places like that. Oh, my when God. When you have these little swim with the dolphins resorts in Mexico and places like that, they're just, you know, raping and pillaging the wild by taking these dolphins. It's horrific. People should not support that. Uh, you know, I, I, I will never, ever support taking a cetacean out of the wild. I mean, that was something that came up not too long ago, you know, if they're, they're bringing in these beluga whales. Mm. If, just, from, I, from, from from Russia, right? Exactly. And I, I said, you know, I, I'm not going to sign on that dotted line. I don't agree with it. Um, now, there's always exceptions, Corbin. Uh, for instance, you and I both know, had it not been for zoos, animals like the California condor, mm. Blackfoot ferret, the Arabian oryx, there are animals that would be extinct, gone, had it not been for zoos. So not only were they saved in zoos, but they've been successfully reintroduced into the wild. And these are the things that are important for zoos to do. But I also got to make it very clear to the public here. I don't want to mislead you and think, oh, because that's why we have animals, to reintroduce them back into the wild. Yeah. No, it's just not going to happen for the overwhelming majority of animals here because mm -hmm. we as of yet have not been able to successfully teach a tiger how to live in the wild. And if we could, the problem is not teaching the tiger how to live in the wild, but where is the wild to introduce it to? Man, you hit the nail on the head. I think some people, these extremists, and I'm sure you get it a lot. I get it a lot all on time. social media. All the time I get messages daily, um, especially on TikTok with our younger generation who just... Yeah, I'm not on TikTok. I can't even get there. Dude, it's insane. People... Anyway, whatever. Okay, so yeah, TikTok... It's insane, though, but I think they have this idea of this utopia of this amazing wild that is left for all the, you know, for uh, tigers. The, the best example, living in one of the most heavily populated areas in the world. India, are you kidding me? Where are they going to go? Right. And, you know, I, and I've seen them persecuted. Listen, you know, and the wild also is not Disney. Yes. You know, I, I tell people all the time, <laughs> listen, I, yes. I've been to Africa over 50 times. Okay. Oh, I've been to the tropical rainforest of the Amazon and the tropical forest over 100 times. Um, nature can be incredibly cruel. I've watched animals suffer beyond belief. And people will say, well, why don't you help them? Because that's not our job. You know, when mm -hmm. we're watching something happen in nature, there's a reason that animal's going to die because some other animal's going to feed on it. It's all part of that circle of life. But it certainly isn't this utopia that people see in the film mind of their imagination um you know it's, it's the other thing i talk about and this is also a very controversial subject that i get bashed on a lot but though i don't hunt myself oh yeah the true hunter the true hunter a guy who is out in deer season uh -huh. to hunt deer to stock his freezer uh -huh. is one of the best conservationists that we have why because you know what? We, as a human race, have removed the natural predators. We don't have wolves where they used to be. We don't have mountain lions and panthers where they used to be. Deer populations can explode. When those populations explode, 
They can starve to death depending on droughts or whatever's going on. Mm. They can have tons of ticks, spread Lyme disease. There's all kinds of problems. So we as humans have to be kind of a predator and balancer there. And you know what? This is going to, I know I'm, I'm going to get roasted on this, but I'm just going to be honest with you. A true hunter who goes out there, hunts a deer, shoots that deer, is a much quicker, much more humane death mm-hmm. than what most deer will go through. And he's eating that deer. Now, I am not a fan of trophy hunting. I do yeah. not believe in that at all. When you're going to go out to shoot an animal and hang it up on your wall, there's something inherently wrong with you, I believe. I think you just have some kind of, I don't know what it is. But if you're gonna if you're gonna hunt an animal and you're gonna eat it, and this was brought to my attention when I was in Panama again, and I was with an indigenous person and we went hunting, and he hunted it, and with a with a bow he caught a, a taper. He killed oh the taper. man! He killed the taper, and you know it was it was a mixed emotion as I'm watching this, as I'm telling him. Uh, yeah. But I gotta tell you something, Corbin. That taper laid there and died. He got on his knees in front of that taper and he started praying. And he was praying in a dialect that I could pick up somewhat because it's based on sure. Spanish. He was thanking the taper. He was thanking the taper for providing food for his wife, for his children, for his village. He then processed that animal. And Corbin, he used every inch of that animal. He processed the skin. He cut the skin. He took the hooves. He took the bones that he used as cutting, uh, cutting utensils. He, he butchered the wow. meat in every way that there was hardly a thing left of that animal and he carried that thing on his back. This must have caught weight 500 pounds. Oh and he carried God. that thing and lugged it back to the village. And that animal fed that village for a couple of weeks. Okay. And I said to him, and I asked him what he's praying. And I said, and he told me, and he had, he got emotion and tears in his eyes. He goes, this animal is giving life to us. Yeah. And, and we are here to protect its home so that its, so that its offspring will have a home to live in. We all give and take a little bit in that circle. And you know, that mentality is so, you know, it's maybe a little idealistic, but I saw it come to fruition in my own eyes. Oh, was that hard for you, though? I just, it would be so difficult for me to witness the hunt, and I'm sure you had to eat the taper, because, I mean, you're part of the, it would be rude probably not to. You're right, you're right, and it was hard for me. I am not going to lie, it was oh, hard man. Um, But I came to understand it, and you know, Corbin, I think one of the most common questions I get asked all the time, am I a vegetarian? Oh, yeah. I'm not. I'm not. Now, I don't eat a lot of red meat and I make sure, you know, my poultry is free range. I try to be as environmentally sensitive as I can, but I do eat chicken. I do eat fish. And, you know, I do have leather sneakers. Um, So I can't be a hypocrite either. I just have to try to ensure that the things that I do purchase, the things that I am consuming, that they are harvested in a humane way. You know, I won't go to a fast food restaurant. Uh, I, I won't buy things that I know are not being cultivated in a humane way. And I think if we all did that, it would make a difference. Um, but I do believe in what we call that circle of life. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And I and I think we're so detached from our food because I could have someone hating on me eating a ham sandwich telling me yeah. that these pigs. No, seriously, <laughs> that these I pigs know. are, you know, on the farm I anyway. And, and we're so detached. And I think if people really you know what I mean? Um, had to hunt their own food, you mm-hmm. know, or, or saw, I, I just, cause kids grow up, they don't, they see the food in the grocery store. They don't look into, uh, really how it got there. You know what I mean? Right. They have no clue. They have no clue. But I think I got to tell you, it's a real credit to this younger generation because they are becoming more and more aware of this. Yep. They are much more focused on the environment and protecting the environment yep. than my generation ever was. 
Yeah, you're right. So that is, and I, I think social media, that is some good has come from social media where it is raising awareness. And I think that's, absolutely. I, I think that is important because people are now, you know, before, like you said, you only had TV or only had a few channels. Now people have access to so much information, um, which is a good and bad thing. Well, it's good and bad in the sense that it's good when you get good information, but sure. you've got to be able to, you know, differentiate between the trolls just throwing stuff out there to, to screw things up uh-huh. and the people who've really done their research and are credible. Okay, so you are also, I did some research on you, Ron, which by the oh, way, I'm sorry. no, you, you have a great Wikipedia page. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I was going to say, I'm so jealous. And so Wikipedia got this wrong because Wikipedia said that you've been to Africa 40 times. You said over 52 times. Over 52 times. My God. It was my 53rd time this last trip. I don't know when that Wikipedia page was written. I am so, so jealous. I've only been twice. And I I feel like, and you're you're just, you're a huge ambassador for Africa. You're, You're a Nikon ambassador. I looked at some of your photos on the Nikon site. And I have to tell you, man, I'm a little, little jealous because you have some fantastic leopard shots. Well, you know, again, Corbin, I'm just really lucky. I'm not, and I try to tell, I even told the people from Nikon when they chose me as an ambassador, I go, guys, you know, they're really much better photographers. I'm just very lucky. I get to be in the right place at the right time. And I think what's enabled me to be a good ambassador for Nikon is that I am not that ultra photo geek where I know every setting and every little thing. I love photography. Uh, It's the greatest tool I have in my storytelling when I try to engage people with wildlife. But the biggest advantage I have is that I know my models. And that's what I try to tell people, you know, know your subject. Uh, when I can anticipate a behavior, when I can know when animals are going to do certain things, um, it really helps in capturing that moment. So that's been a big, big plus for me. Um, I can't thank Nikon enough. They, you know, they've given me this incredible platform to do great things and, and speak around the country on, on wildlife photography and conservation work. But again, you know, it's just being in the right place at the right time. I really don't think I have much of a skill. I'm just very lucky. Okay, well, your photos are great. I think you're a very humble person. Your photos are fantastic. I mean, you can look at my photos and know they're an amateur, but your photos are great. They're they're awesome. I got great equipment, and it's the animals in the photos that are great. It has really not much to do with the photographer. (laughs) Okay, so, Ron, we're going to have to sidetrack because the one animal that has evaded me in Africa, and I've been so close. Can you guess it? I know you're going to guess it. Okay, it's going to be one of the two that I, I, I finally got the one. And the two, I got a, a scheming thing, uh, an aardvark and a pangolin. Oh, God, no, dude. Those, I mean, that, that, that would be a dream. Those evaded me as well. But the leopard, man. And I Really? Like, yes. Yes. Oh, and I've been to the, the hot spots like the Maasai Mara, the uh, Lake Nakuru. Yes. Gordon. Go ahead. Gordon. Yes, yes. Gordon. Have you seen tons of, I'm sure, tons of leopards? I've, uh, I think in my last log, it was a total of probably 200 and something leopards. What? Where are yeah. you going? Well, I'll tell you, if you want to go to a place where you're going to guarantee to see leopards, you need to go to Sabi Sands in South Africa. That's my friend Jerry told me. Okay, South Africa. Okay. Go to Sabi Sands okay. in South Africa. Corbin, I'll, I'll see if I can text you some video. I think I have it someplace. Oh, of a leopard that walked through reception in my camp. Oh, okay. God. This leopard, and, and I looked at it, and it literally, I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you, I stayed perfectly still. It was no more than eight feet away from me. They walked, they looked at me, and just kept on walking right in front of the reception desk, right through the eating area, and out to the bush. What? It was one of those moments where you just go, unbelievable. It was just, I, I don't know how else to say it, but if you go to Sabi Sands okay. in South Africa, um, I promise you, you will see a leopard. You will see more than one leopard. 
a punch. Oh my god! Well, that's what they said about the Masai Mara, and I just—I mean, that's the Masai Mara. The problem with the Masai Mara is it's so large. There you go. Okay. It's so large, and um, there are so many people out there now. The Masai, the Masai Mara is almost over-touristed. I hope that the that the conservancy starts to really regulate the numbers going in there because they're going to turn it into a dust bowl if it keeps on going the way it's going. Fortunately, with this—not fortunately. I understand the positive side of this pandemic is yeah. that it's gotten a chance to breathe and regrow a little bit here, uh, even though they just reopened it again. Yeah, I remember being a little disappointed, and I, I, this makes me sound horrible, but whatever. I, I was a little disappointed because I remember leading up going to Africa for my first time, you know, watching these nature documentaries and Big Cat Diary. I was a huge Big Cat Diary fan, you know, still am. Yeah, I worked with him there. I stayed with him in, in <sighs> governor's camp. I stayed with him and his wife. Are you serious? With with yeah. John, with, with uh, Angela and... Um, yeah. John Scott. Jonathan yeah, John Scott. Scott. Jonathan Scott. Yeah. That is Not only so that, cool. Jonathan Scott and I tracked tigers together in India on elephant back. No way. Yeah. That is so... So he, I've been <laughs> in talks with John to get him on the show, and it's back and forth. It hasn't worked out yet. But yeah, I have their books. I'm a huge fan of the Scots. Fantastic. He's a super, he's a super nice guy. Uh, again, my last trip, I stayed in governor's camp there with them, and uh, we talked and... Uh, you know, we went out photographing together, and he, he's 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 a super nice guy. Like I said, we we tracked elephant, uh, tracked tigers together on elephant back. Wow. He, he might not remember that. If you talk to him, ask him. So you remember the tall guy from Missouri, Miami? And then he came out. As a matter of fact, the lady who's, who's based in his camp there, who does the cheetah, the Ma, the Maromero cheetah research sure, project. Sure, sure, yeah. Well, I met her there with Jonathan, and I got so inspired by the work that she does. Last year, I bought her a brand new SUV for her to do her research. Oh, that's so awesome. That's amazing. Oh, my God. For me, Corbin, and again, I don't want to keep on going off on tangents, but, you know, I didn't come to work at a zoo to work for an attraction. Yeah. That was not my reason. My purpose to work in a zoo was to work for a conservation organization. I think zoos, with few exceptions, zoos have to do a better job of funding conservation projects in the field. There are too many zoos that spend millions of dollars building these state-of-the-art exhibits with all the bells and whistles and audiovisual stuff. And when you ask them, well, how much money, you know, they build a new bear exhibit. How much money have you given to bear conservation? And they'll say, well, we gave this much. It was like this infantism or nothing at all. Yeah. That to me is shameful. And I got almost a little frustrated here, to be honest with you, because I didn't think we were doing enough. And I said, "Why we need to be giving more money for conservation. And, well, we don't have the money, you know, if the budgets get cut and that's the first thing they cut. So I started an endowment. I said, I'm going to start an endowment here. One of the positives of working on all these television shows, I got to meet people who do have the wherewithal to make donations. I don't, but I did meet people who did. And they said, well, you know, if you're going to have an endowment, you're going to have to raise a minimum of a million dollars. I said, well, I'm going to stay here if I have to be 100 years old. I'm going to keep on meeting everybody. I said, listen, I want to do this thing. Well, to make a long story short, the Ron McGill Conservation Endowment here at the zoo is the largest first conservation endowment at Zoo Miami. It now has... $2 million dollars in it wow and each year i gave i give away oh sorry oh you're fine sorry uh i i am um, i give away close to a hundred thousand dollars every year wow to conservation boots on the ground work um because that's what we need to do if zoos are going to survive if they're going to thrive they have to demonstrate what they're doing for conservation in the field it's no longer just enough to say well we educate people that's important, but it's not enough. 
Wow. That is congratulations. That's amazing. And it's a great example how one person can make a difference. You know, I think sometimes some people feel like they're so small and like, oh, how could I make a difference? I mean, but you're just a living example of growing up in an apartment and and what would you say in, in New York City in Brooklyn or the Bronx? Uh, York- uh, uh, yeah, it's the Bronx. Yeah. The Bronx, the good old Bronx. And uh, Jackson Heights. Oh, man. Sorry. I didn't mean to. Yeah. <laughs> I've been in the rough neighborhood now. Very rough. Dude, I've had my car stranded in the Bronx. So anyway, uh, uh, anyway, so yeah, but it's just amazing the work that you do. And I think, you know, and raising awareness. And I think, like I said, anyone can make a difference. Well, see, Corbin, you're doing that. You're doing that. You're doing it. You know, I don't have the patience to do a podcast. (laughs) As you get older, you start losing that patience. (laughs) Well, thank Uh, you for being on the podcast for almost an hour. I appreciate it. No, but, but listen, it's my pleasure. It's easy for me to talk, but I can't do all the setup and organizing, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm winding down doing the, the, the appearances with animals at different places because I don't want to deal with the permits. I don't want to deal with the, you know, all the, the red tape that goes with it. It's not worth the stress anymore. So I try to kind of, you know, pass the baton down. And there's a lot of young people really into it now. And I'm hoping they can do it. And I'm hoping they can, you know, navigate a lot of the hurdles that are put in front of you now, because like we were saying, it's a different time. It is a different time. Okay. So speaking about appearances, I know you said you're winding them down, but what is your favorite show you've ever done? My favorite show I've ever done. Gosh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think when I went on Letterman with a Komodo dragon, Oh, big, Komodo dragon? What? He was about he was about seven feet long. We oh my! Hatched out of an egg. Gosh. Okay. And we went on with the Komodo dragon, and and Dave was genuinely frightened. He, I mean, I walk out on stage with this, and I'm a big guy already, and this, and he's flicking out his tongue, and Dave, whoa, 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 he's almost he almost fell behind the desk. Um, so uh, it was kind of fun because you know we he wanted to give him some food, and Dave very off the cuff, you know, we gave him a, a chunk of. Of meat, and he said, "Well, what what kind of meat is this?" And I go, "It's horse meat." And, and Dave goes, "Here, have some secretariat or something like that." You know, um, so we, the, the, the Komodo dragon with Letterman was pretty great because on that same trip, I did something again. When I was younger and that being really smart. I said, "You know what? This is never going to happen again, and it's never happened before. So let's do it." So we did a Chinese fire drill in Times Square where I got out with the Komodo dragon. I stood in the middle of Times Square and took a picture with Times Square behind me. Oh my god! And the funny thing is, New Yorkers didn't even look. They just yep. kept on walking. <laughs> And New Yorkers just kept on walking. Uh, but it's a picture that I cherish of me standing on in Times Square with a Komodo dragon holding this big Komodo dragon. Can you send that to me? I mean, I just I will. Okay. That is the coolest thing. And I, dude, I love how you, dude, I've walked deer down the street in Times Square, camels. I mean, we've had parrots. I mean, no one cares. It's, it's a complete oh, yeah. New Yorker it's attitude. New York is unbelievable. But I will say this. We were at the Mayflower Hotel. Back then, it was the only hotel that let us stay with yeah. animals yep, overnight yep, yep. with a cheetah. Oh, and I had a cheetah in the room, and we ordered room service. <laughs> <laughs> and and so the guy comes to room service, and the cheetah, we, we let him walk free in the room. He was a great cheetah. Yeah. I opened the door. The guy sees the cheetah, and he dropped all the food and screamed. And he dropped all the food. <laughs> and he screamed because the cheetah's in there. He thought he was going to die. I said, well, now you got a story to tell your family. You know, that I gave room service for a cheetah. Oh, my God. That is the – that's awesome. Is there any animal that makes you uncomfortable when you're presenting them on television? Um. No, because I wouldn't present it on television. An animal that I'm never, ever comfortable around is an elephant. An elephant. Um, oh. Just because um, I know how smart they are. I know how they can, how quick they can be. Um, and especially when I don't know the elephant, uh-huh. uh, I, I'll, I don't ever trust a keeper or anybody to say, oh, no, he's okay. He's okay. No, no, no. Uh, 
because one of the things I've learned is, generally speaking, the more intelligent the animal, the more dangerous they can be. Mm. So I, you know, when you expect something to be dangerous, it's less dangerous. When you get comfortable, you know, whether it be a great ape, whether it be an elephant, whether it be some kind of pachyderm, that's when you can really get in trouble. So I'm always very, very cautious around elephants because I have such a profound respect for them. I think they're just one of the most amazing animals on the face of the planet. And um, I know that in a split second, they can break your mouth. Yeah, and I there's footage online and some Netflix documentaries, but you don't see elephants as these dangerous animals until you see one go on a rampage and just trample people. To, I mean, it's just it's it's very shocking and how fast they are. You know, they look so it's, it's incredibly fast. And you know, the, the fact is that you know, Corbin, for many years, elephants have been mistreated. Yeah, that's another that's another animal that I do not support ever taking out of the wild to put under human care. Mm. Uh, again, it's to save its life is an ultimate thing. Um, you know, we're going to hear arguments from people saying, oh, we need to bring in a new bloodline. Well, you know what? Start perfecting artificial insemination. Start immobilizing animals in the wild. Collect the semen out there. Get that new bloodline and then inject it this way. But we're going to have to come up with different solutions. We can't use the solution. Oh, we need a new bloodline. We need to bring new animals in. It's unacceptable anymore. Do you think in 20, 30 years that they will be phased out of being in captivity or under human care? Elephants? Kind of like orcas? I, I don't know. Um I, I I don't know, and I don't know how I feel about that. You know, mm. I, I would like to say yes, but that would be very selfish of me because when I was a kid, I got to see them in a zoo, and that's what spurred me to do what I do today. Mm -hmm. So who am I to say, well, they don't belong there now, so I should take that opportunity away from all future children, future generations, if they can be managed properly, if they can be kept in social structures with the proper amount of land. Yes, we shouldn't have elephants on an outdoor exhibit in Chicago in December, okay? Mm -hmm. We should never have elephants by themselves or two or three individual animals. They, this is a socially dependent animal. Yeah. Uh, we, have to, we have to respect that social structure of the animal. If you cannot manage them in that proper way, respecting their social needs, we shouldn't manage them at all. Yeah, man, that's just... Yeah, I remember back in the day going to the zoo where they were they would do free contact. And I remember they would I remember riding, can you believe this, an African elephant at a zoo in Tennessee. They have a picture of it. Like this you wasn't could, that long ago. You could have done it here, Corbin. We did it here fifteen years ago. Isn't that crazy? Crazy. But listen, when I started at the Cranon Park Zoo, we had chimps in a ten by ten concrete stall with metal bars with nothing but a tire on a rope. Yeah. Okay? Just horrific. When you think back about what was happening back then, it was horrific. Mm -hmm. But we're learning. We're changing. So hopefully that, that evolution continues. 100%. All right, Ron, we are almost at about an hour. Do you have any last-minute pieces of advice for listeners or people wanting to break into a profession working with animals? Well, stay focused. Stay mm -hmm. focused. And again, like I said initially, get as much experience as you can, even if it means volunteering, giving away your time for free, because that experience is invaluable. That's going to make a big difference when you have that interview and show your resume. This is what I've done. Mm -hmm. Take photographs of things demonstrating what you've been able to do. Um, listen, this job is never going to make you a millionaire, <laughs> but it will make you richer than most of your friends. I've got friends of mine um, that I'll give you a quick story. My roommate in college loved animals the way I did. And I said, this is what I'm going to do with Wilder. I want to work with Wilder. He goes, no, no, I'm going to go into the stock market because I need money. My dream is to have that big Mercedes and that big house in the Hamptons. You know, We both went to the University of Florida together. We had a 30-year reunion not too long ago. 
And we went back, and he drives up in this freaking Maybach Mercedes, okay? I mean, it's a $150,000 car. But he was fat. He was smoking. <laughs> he was smoking. This is a guy who played ball with me in college. The guy was, I mean, his body was his temple, Corbin. And he just let himself go, and he's smoking, and he looked like crap. And I go, geez, man, you look terrible. And he goes, yeah, no, it's just stress, man. It's just stress. I go, that's a nice Maybach. And he had, he lived in the Hamptons. He had one of his houses was in the Hamptons. I go, but dude, you got your house in the Hamptons? And he looked at me, and I'll never forget what he said. He goes, I would give you everything I own if I could switch places with you. Really? And he said that with the most sincere, I would give everything I own. If I could switch places with you, he goes, I follow you online. I see you doing these things that I only dream of doing. And I I could do them if I wanted to, but it wouldn't be the same because I'd be paying to do it. And I can't take the time off away from work because then I'm stressed and I'm losing out when I'm missing work. And it's just a no-win situation for me. But you look so happy. And, you know, you've kept yourself. I'm not in shape, but I'm not. I didn't let myself go crazy. I mean, I lost yeah. all my hair without my control. Um, you know, and, 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 and he goes, I would give anything. I would give you everything I have to switch places with you. And it just reminded me, you know, so remember this, there's my favorite line in the world is this, Corbin, I want to leave your listeners with this. Remember this, that life is not measured by the number of breaths that you take. It's measured by the number of times your breath is taken away. And when you have those moments, I remember walking on foot and seeing my first tiger in the wild on foot. And it just, it took my breath away. And people say, oh my God, were you scared? I go, no, I was just unbelievably overwhelmed with excitement. Okay. Those moments will define your life. I'd rather live 50 years with a ton of those moments than 100 years in front of the television or the computer screen, just plugging away. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You've said it all. Ron, thank you so much, man, for just coming on the show. And you provided amazing insight. I would love to meet you in person next time I'm in Miami. Anytime. Please look me up. I'm here most of the time. If I'm not traveling. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, man. Hi, man. Be safe. Stay healthy, bud. See ya. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.